In this edition of the podcast, we're kind of opening. COVID-19 continues to lurk as distancing restrictions are sometimes lifted, sometimes reintroduced, but many of us have been busy in lockdown. We'll catch up with the National Art School about the various pursuits of their students over the past few weeks and what's still in store. Can Bitcoin tech be used to authenticate artworks? Well, using blockchain security, yes, it can. Developers and art agents are doing just that in London. And Collingwood Yard's art precinct in Melbourne begins to blossom after lockdown. I'm Tim Stackpole and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again, as we seem to take two steps forward and one step back when it comes to COVID-19, but I certainly hope you're coping okay. It's tough and frustrating, but best to remain patient, I guess, as we are again producing the podcast from the Backyard Studio. Anyway, we're here every month or so and still providing transcripts of interviews for the hearing impaired, and those can be downloaded from the description of each episode at www.insidethegallery.com.au. And the transcripts are made possible thanks to the support from Pixel Perfect Pro Lab for all your professional photographic and print reproduction needs. And they also continue to offer listeners to this podcast a 20% reduction in the cost of your first print job with them. So please do visit them at pixelperfect.com.au and you can also search for Pixel Perfect on Facebook. And don't forget as well, if you do want to sign up for the newsletter regarding this podcast, we'll send you a reminder every time a new edition is published. And you can also find the link for that at www.insidethegallery.com.au. Okay, first of all, Jackie Taffel is the media liaison with the National Art School, which despite the COVID lockdown has been busy over the past few months with quite a few projects. The Corona Quilt Project, the On Stillness Insta Exhibition, online short courses and the school centenary coming up in a couple of years' time. Jackie, it looks like it's full steam ahead, right? Yeah, it really is at the moment. Um, I mean, obviously, coronavirus, uh, we had to shut the campus for a while. Um, there's just been so much going on. The students also have been really busy at home, so we've been featuring their work in our on our Instagram page as well. Mm. Uh, and then there's been these individual projects that have come up as well that um, have been really rewarding. Uh, actually, it's been really inspiring to see what people have done in such difficult circumstances. Yeah, so let, let's talk about some of those individual projects. First of all, that quilt project. Now, I have seen a piece by Anna Mould. Uh, this is this is the Corona Quilt Project, and her yep. stitching is of the, the Ruby Princess, of course, which <laughs> is what we've been talking about for months. There's more to it, though, than that. So what happens now? Well, I lo- also what I love about Anna's um, square of on the Ruby Princess is that she's done it on a sort of a chucks cloth, so a cleaning <laughs> cloth. Um, so the Corona Quilt Project came from two students who are doing an art history and theory course about materiality. And uh, they came to their lecturers and said, we want to do this quilt project where at that stage, everybody was in isolation, that nobody was on campus, where students, at first it was just in their class, would do quilting panels. And then when, sort of in a reflection of of their situation then, so someone else has done a panel saying, wash your hands. Um, Other Mm. people have just, uh, someone else has done this really sort of meditative embroidery just because that's the space that she found herself in. And then the idea is that at the end, when, when everybody's back on campus and together, and I guess when social distancing is over, that they gather and sew the quilt together with all these panels. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the, the plan is to do that for craft week in October. So present the quilt as a material artifact of 
this strange time. Yes, yes, a great, a great historical document, you know, <laughs> artifact, as you say, as it were, of, of what we've been through and still are going through to a certain extent. That's right. And the nice thing about that project was it was also inspired by another quilt that um, <laughs> it's a bit complicated. So one of our lecturers, Priya Vaughan, her mother Bronwyn made her a quilt and Priya lectured about that quilt, about what it means to be about a, a lecture about gifts. So the students were inspired by that lecture. And now Bronwyn is now doing the course and she is one of Anna's students. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so she's also, so she's done some squares as well. It's kind of a lovely sort of family connection yeah. as well. So, but Anna and yeah. Rani are the two students who, who came up with the idea. Yeah, that'll, that'll be great to see in October. Just moving on now, the On Stillness Insta exhibition. Now, that's not just a project for your school, is it? You've kind of reached out to a whole lot of other schools regarding that. Yeah, this was a really, this is, I mean, I think they've all been fantastic projects. And the great thing is just keeping up these connections while we haven't been able to see each other. I mean, that's kind of a huge theme, you know, everywhere in the arts. The On Stillness exhibition came about uh, with two of our gallery staff, so Olivia Sophia, our curator, and Scott Elliott. And they were talking to some of the other galleries, and specifically Newcastle Gallery, and they were saying, well, what can we do together? So they came up with this concept of the on stillness sort of online exhibition. So a lot of galleries have just had their, turned their exhibitions into online versions so that you can see them mm. online. But this is, very, this is mm. specifically targeted to Instagram. So the idea was that each institution would choose a work from their collection that illustrated the concept of stillness. So it was, a, it was looking at one of the things that coronavirus has given people is time, you know, time that yep. people haven't had and time yep. to sit and reflect and be still. So it was reflecting that idea of stillness. So it started off with mm. Newcastle Art Gallery and National Art School hosting, but they invited other regional galleries to join them. So, uh, so far, Orange, we've got Wollongong, Newcastle, Tweed, all, all those regional galleries are now contributing. And it's such a beautiful page. And the variety of works is incredible. And a lot of the galleries are choosing local artists to, to represent that. And, and the other thing, I guess, with this is that there was no reason that we couldn't do this before, but this has just made people think in a different way of how we can make these connections while being in such different parts of the state. That's right. It's been motivating in a, in a remarkable sense, speaking to so many people over the last few months mm. on the podcast. Although it's been tough, it's been amazing how it has actually turned our minds in, in a different way. And I think a lot of artists that I've been speaking to thought that it was going to be something, I mean, a lot of artists work in isolation anyway, but a lot of mm, them that I've mm. been speaking to have said, I thought it was, I was going to be really productive and it was going to be great to sort of start <laughs> a new project. But actually, when I spoke to Lucien Rickard, who was one of our Biennale artists, she said she went into a torpor. <laughs> she said yeah. for two weeks, she just couldn't do anything apart from walk the dog yeah. and think. But then from that comes other things. So it's almost like a... It's that break in your routine. I still feel a little bit of isolation regretting that I haven't yet mastered the viola uh, while we're locked <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, your school as well, like so many, has had to pivot to a lot of online stuff. Mm. And I know it's still early days, but I think those courses that you offered became fully subscribed, right? Yeah. So we offer, as well as the, we offer lots of different courses as well as our graduate courses. So we, and one of the, very popular um, programs is our short course program. And uh, so, I mean, that's been going for many years and happens on campus and it offers people from outside the degree programs the opportunity to come in on campus, be taught by our teachers, professional artists across the whole range of um, disciplines. Mm. 
Mm. Um, so that's always been really popular. But yeah, obviously we couldn't have people on campus, so that that shut down for the term one. So yeah, Ella Dreyfus, Dr. Ella Dreyfus, who runs those courses with some of her teachers who've already taught on, who had experience teaching online, came mm. up with four courses to deliver by Zoom. This is the first time the school has done this, and they really weren't sure what the you know what the response was going to be but literally we launched it and within two days some of the classes were full they had uh people signing up from all over australia uh and even for a couple from the u.s um Mm. one woman in uh new york i think had met someone in florence who told her about our courses so (laughs) (laughs) these sort of global connections sort of start sort of um going out into the ether uh, yep. So it's been really positive for to see that there's so much enthusiasm for the courses and trust. I guess that you know they're going to be they're going to be good online as well. But it just for us, it just makes them. You know, school is always trying to improve accessibility to actually making art, not just consuming art, but making it. So this, I think, is a way that we'll keep doing this sort of thing so that we can provide access to people who, who can't make it into campus. So I, I think it's going to be, yeah, it's been really popular. So we're really so happy about that. And speaking of that outreach, you've got the centenary coming up. I know it's two years away, but considering the history of the college and how so many people have gone through, I guess you're kind of wanting people's stories to come back, any artefacts or historical documents that they may have, which would be of interest to the school. 2022 is our centenary. And we've got a very uh, strong archives and collections uh, section. So Deborah Beck is the person who's in charge of that and Isabel Hesketh works with her as well. There's a lot of stuff out there connected to NAS. Mm. I mean, it's been going for a long time. We've had so many students and alumni and staff go through. And it's one of those things that, again, sort of taking this opportunity when people have a bit more time on their hands, it's sort of a perfect time to... Uh, sort of delve back into those those boxes that you have, you know, in the back of the cupboard, or mm. or you know, mm. find your old yearbooks, or look anything to do with the with the school, and also to write down your memories. I find my grandmother went to the school, and uh, I only found out when I started working there that that there was she'd written all this stuff about um, her time there that was in the archives that I hadn't seen before, and mm, it really lovely. brings back those times, those those written memories are just as valuable as the artifacts. So at this yeah. stage, the uh, the archives are just asking people to take photos of, of anything that they've got and send them in. Okay, a little bit of time to lead up to that, but Deborah Beck is the one to get in touch with at the school if anyone has any material. And Jackie, always great to speak with you, and thanks so much for taking time out to speak with us on the podcast. Thanks so much, Jim. Absolute pleasure. Jackie Taffel there with the National Art School, perhaps best known by some from my era as East Sydney Tech. It changed its name to the National Art School in 1996, although it has been operating in some form from as far back as the 1920s, hence the upcoming centenary. And for more information, head online to nas.edu.au. Let's head to Melbourne now and the establishment of Collingwood Yards as an art precinct built upon the site of a former old technical college, reimagined as a very unique space. The transformation has taken a pretty significant effort, and the Contemporary Arts Precinct Limited is the organisation that has managed and developed the Collingwood Yard site since the Victorian government through Creative Victoria designated the site as a creative hub. And Marcus Westbury is the CEO of Contemporary Arts Precinct. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Marcus. Thank you. 
You must be thrilled that the project has pretty much finally reached this point, putting COVID aside, I guess. There have been a few other challenges along the way. Look, there have, and I, I should just say I'm, I'm not quite thrilled at, at being at the finish line yet because <laughs> there, there's this strange experience of, uh, you know, sort of getting halfway to the finish line every week or month, but mm. never quite getting there. Mm. But no, we've made it a long way. Um, I've been working on this project for four years now, wow. and uh, it's it's very exciting to finally have um, first tenants and first organisations moving into the building. We still have a bit of work to do in terms of uh, fitting out spaces for some of the things and organisations and projects that are yet to come, but um, it will open up throughout this year and it's it's nice to finally see um, or give the public a chance to see mm. what we've been doing. Mm. Now, let's go back a few years, Marcus. You talked about you've been working on it for four years or so. How did all of this come about? So, look, I, I, um, I wasn't involved in the very embryonic stages, but uh, the Collingwood TAFE site was closed uh, circa 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding is the state government looked at a number of options of what to do with that site and eventually decided circa 2010 that they'd like it to be an arts precinct. One of the things that happened really immediately out of that was Circus Oz were able to get a great site and uh, move into what is now next door to us. Uh And then there was a bit of a period, uh, first half of last decade as it is now, where the state was looking for the right model to manage it and considered, you know, handing it all over to one arts organisation, considered running it as a state-run facility, and eventually they decided to basically support a, an independent not-for-profit entity taking ownership of the site. And I got involved around that time mm-hmm. as the first employee of, of CAP, which uh, which is the organisation that's taken on the project over the last four years. Now, that is a new organisation, right? It is, it is. And so we've been established specifically around this project, but with a broader mission to provide affordable art space, you know, recognising that you know, there's, a, there's a real challenge at the moment in the inner city of Melbourne and you know, broadly across Australia for sustainable and affordable art spaces. I think it's quite remarkable. And thinking about what happens in Sydney, for instance, a a public site comes up for sale or becomes redundant, and pretty much you can well expect the developers to move in and a new apartment block to go up. I think it's kind of unique that this former TAFE college, this technical college, has now become a centre of the arts rather than a brand new set of apartment blocks. Look, I, it, look, it happens a lot in Victoria. It happens all around Australia. I've, I've, I have jokingly said I have a lot of friends from New South Wales and I've lived and worked up there for quite some time. And every time I've brought people through, whether it's um, interested onlookers or parliamentary delegations or people who work with the arts, um, there is a bit of a, I can't quite believe this happened. Mm. We're really fortunate in Victoria. I think we've, we've actually had the support of successive governments. The current government's been really supportive. I think there's a number of you know important reasons that this site is incredibly valuable to the local community. Mm. It's got a really rich history um, going right back to the 1920s and, and, and a whole other you know First Nations history before that. Because of the presence of the Keith Herring mural on the site, which is an amazing asset around which to build an arts precinct, right. it probably puts it, bumps it into a category mm. you know, of being a little bit special or mm. a little bit unique. Mm. And I'm sure that went some way to um, informing the decision makers. But mm. I think also, I think there's a real recognition, you know, Melbourne builds so much of its reputation about being a creative city, a livable city, all of those things. And if, if artists and um, arts organisations are squeezed out of the inner city, it's going to be a very different place. The building itself, it's quite masculine in architecture, not brutalist, but very strong in its foundation there. What changes have you had to make to it to kind of make it feel more like a, an inspiring art space rather than a, a hard and fast place of learning? 
Yeah, look, um, it's, there's actually three buildings on our site um, and they all sit around a central courtyard. And when we first started, I sort of um, one of the things that sort of took me a little bit too long to realise was that you, the way the site was structured, you couldn't get out of any one building and into any other building without sort of leaving the site. Mm-hmm. And so we've, a big part of what we've been trying to do has been about opening the site up to the public, so creating new links, new um, uh, you know, ways of accessing the site that open up that courtyard and sort of we've reorientated the, the three buildings so they sort of sort of look around a sort of shared central courtyard space and open out onto that as opposed to um, a bit of a fortress I've described it as that it yes. used to be back in the days yes, when it was yes. a school, you know, you're yep. keeping the kids in and the public mm. out was probably mm. the way it was designed. So um, adding those connections, I think, make a big difference. And they also give us a really interesting site in that there's, you know, um, multiple different street entrances, there's different levels that you can come into. And so the place has quite a distinct feel depending on, you know, which arts organisation you're visiting or whether you're just coming out of curiosity or, you know, all the different ways you can discover it, I think, are actually one of its great features now. You talked about how Circus Oz is next door. You have some other tenants that have already signed up? It's, uh, look, we're mostly full. We've got mm. a few spaces that we're sort of still working to find the best use for, some of which are the more sort of uh, public-facing spaces and, you know, more sort of retail-type spaces. Um, that's proved to be a little bit of a challenge. But uh, we've also got, uh, we've also made a conscious decision to not lock the entire site up forever. So we have some short, medium and longer term tenancies in the mix. So we expect them to turn over over time. Uh-huh. Um, we've got 16 in the current configuration artist studios, some of which are being used as project spaces and will eventually swap out and have other artists come into. So, you know, I think one of the big risks when you sort of build a cultural precinct or organisation is that it's very easy to sort of capture 2018 or whatever it was, the idea of what a cultural space is and then come back five or 10 years later and realise that it's you know, not, not as fresh and as vibrant as it used to be. So um, we, we've been really conscious of making sure that we've always got something emerging, something more established, something growing and, and um, a really vibrant mix. And in terms of what this means to the arts community itself and also the Greater Melbourne, when you create a hub like this, it tends to attract other types of auxiliary businesses around it. I mean, do you really kind of see the opportunity for the whole of perhaps the block that you're situated on to kind of change its its feel, its look because of the other types of businesses that may be attracted? I think there'll be elements of that. I think part of it, of course, is just like keeping a sort of toehold of some of the great sort of spontaneous cultural activity that's been happening in Collingwood for a long time. And then we're very keen to work with and have been working with a lot of, you know, independent galleries, design businesses, artist studios and and all that sort of cluster of things that are already there but will continue to grow up hopefully around the precinct. Oftentimes on this podcast we talk about how the public view art as being very unique, very niche and not necessarily for them. Do you have a philosophy in terms of how to make this accessible to so many people who perhaps don't have a connection with the arts directly? Yeah, and look, and there's a few different things that sort of feed into that. One is what I talked about before, which is about physically opening the site up. You can come into the, the site, you can sit in the middle of the, the beautiful courtyard on a on a warm day, and you don't actually have to enter the building or, or go through an art gallery. We, we really physically opened it up. Mm. The other thing is that I think, you know, a lot of people you know don't know much about art, but they know what they like. And I think we've <laughs> yes. consciously got a very diverse creative community there you know the idea is that when you as you sort of lay down these different layers and you bring these communities together they 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 open up to each other and create opportunities that wouldn't otherwise be there and of course you know we'll also just you know it's a social space it's a community space we'll have hospitality we'll have events we'll you know concerts markets all those sort of things that that 
we can do in a in a shared creative community. And mm. I think that will also reach out to a lot of people who might not otherwise be engaged. Mm. It certainly has tremendous appeal and, and people in other capital cities would be very jealous of uh, seeing how this has evolved. Do you think this could become a blueprint for perhaps other opportunities in, in other states? Are you a good role model? Um, whether, whether we're a good role model or not probably remains to be seen, but I think the models are, is a good one. So, you know, we're an independent not-for-profit. We exist to provide affordable art space. We've designed our our sort of approach around trying to be fairly lean to operate, affordable to run, and be able to offer spaces real affordably to the creative community that we want to support. But equally, we've also designed uh, to be self-sustaining from the rent and the income we expect mm. to earn from the space. And so that balance is, is a challenge, and I think it'll take a bit of time to get that right. But the idea that um, you know, those kind of opportunities are out there. And look, I, I've learned very quickly that if I had probably 10, four and a half thousand square metres, if, if we had 10 times that amount, there's a creative community very keen to, wow. to fill it. Mm. And I think, um, you know, there is, there is definitely demand for mm. more affordable creative spaces. And hopefully this model helps inform a few other places about what they could do. Yeah, that would be lovely to see. Marcus, congratulations on getting this far. COVID notwithstanding, it's a great story. And thanks for speaking with us on Inside the Gallery. Thanks so much. Talking about Collingwood Yards in Melbourne, that's the CEO of Creative Arts Precinct Limited, Marcus Westbury. OAM, actually. He received that Order of Australia medal announced on the Queen's birthday long weekend this year. And we congratulate Marcus on receiving that honour as well. More info on Collingwood Yards can be found online at collingwoodyards.org. Finally, we head to London where Sardis Ratchapuli has established Covet Art. It's not COVID, but Covet, K-O-V-E-T. It's a new artist incubator platform. Their first exhibition, called Delineating Dreams, is available to view now online. Sardis is the granddaughter of P.T. Reddy, a key artist of his time who played a significant role in the evolution of the pivotal modern art movement of Europe in India and who in 1941 formed a group of Bombay contemporary India artists branded as the now-prolific Young Turks. But Saras, of course, brings with her the technology of the 21st century, including the concept of using blockchain security as a means of enhancing the authentication of artwork. It is early days, but Saras joins us from London. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. I just want to ask you what you're proposing is a art world ecosystem which is backed by blockchain. Can you explain what that actually means? Absolutely. So I'm the founder of Cover.Art, and what we do is we help you navigate the world of emerging art. So we present expertly curated works in exhibitions and also art advisory. And what we do is to increase the element of trust, we back uh, the certificates of authenticity and provenance on blockchain. Uh-huh. So what this means is that in the traditional gallery paradigm, um, you would go to a trusted friend or a gallerist to ensure that the artwork that you purchase is coming from the right sources. There's no forgery involved. So therefore, uh, we are able to source the artworks right from the studio of the uh, emerging artists uh, the top tier, and we therefore hope that they will go, uh, they'll have an increasing amount of interest and a growing market in the contemporary art world, mm-hmm. which means that uh, their market and prices will change and increase, hopefully. 
And what it means is that uh, they can be a potential secondary market. Yeah. So when I'm talking about the art uh, ecosystem of the future, uh, while technology is able to help back and push the boundaries of what can happen in the future, is that one, uh, there's an element of trust in the artwork that you're purchasing. Uh, we are rest assured that it's coming from the right sources and your certificate is backed in a very strong, mm. immutable record, mm. uh, which is therefore blockchain. Nobody uh, can touch it or forge it. And then over time, once we are looking at various uh, ways of engaging with art and selling and buying art and therefore creating a secondary market, you don't need to go to any auction houses anymore where they look at kind of authenticity and verify that. You can directly have this transaction because you can focus and you can actually ensure that the artwork that you have is authentic. Uh, and that is a new system that we can create. Yeah, absolutely. And your history, as I mentioned in the introduction, is not surprising considering your family's background in the arts, but who came up with the idea of using blockchain for authenticity? Um, so you're absolutely right, Tim. My grandfather was an artist uh, and I grew up uh, in this environment of, um, you know, literally growing up in his studio. Uh, his studio was literally downstairs when we were growing up in a family home mm. and uh, and therefore I grew up with art. I then proceeded to study engineering. So I'm an engineer, quite a bit of a tech geek myself. And then I worked uh, in finance in the business world and I you know, studied at Sotheby's, understood the art and financial uh, elements of the market, and then uh, thought about what makes and creates an artist's market, uh, the element of trust. And because I'm a bit of a tech geek myself, I have been involved in the AI, so that's machine learning, mm. as well as DLT, distributed ledger technology, or blockchain, uh, for a while now, for a few years. And I've been tracking all the moves, uh, regulatory and otherwise. And therefore, I knew that, I mean, I combined all three of my passions, which is art, technology, and business, uh, to think of this idea. It's obvious then how what you're doing can certainly assist the collectors. But in terms of the artists, I mean, I think this makes a big difference when they're putting art out in public now because using blockchain, you can categorically say that this piece of work actually relates back to them. There's no chance of anything ever being identified or ever being passed off as a forgery. That is right, Tim. At the same time, I do want to clarify that just having some informational records on a blockchain is not enough. Yeah. For example, there are a few companies out there, um, as you would have known, which allow you to just get online and get a blockchain-based certificate. Mm. So you, anybody in the world can log in and uh, put in a picture of an artwork. It can be anybody's artwork and confirm that it's theirs. Right. So that that aspect is, of course, doesn't work because there's no verification angle there. So therefore, what we have added on, which I believe right now nobody else is doing from a curated emerging art gallery space in the world, fingers crossed, is that we go directly to the artists and track the provenance and certificate of authenticity directly from the artist studio. So therefore, we can assure you that it's coming right from the studio as opposed to 
anybody getting online and just submitting some information and it's on the blockchain doesn't mean anything. So that's where we uh, solidify that, you know, protection around you know data and trust. Yeah, that's an excellent clarification there. But how do you choose which artists you're going to carry? So what we do is we go directly to the university shows uh-huh. uh, and we have doing that for the past year. So we go to the degree shows wow. of um, top uh, universities. Of course, I'm based out of London. So we, we are starting to go uh, to the UK ones first and then we'll want to grow globally across the world. Um, so what we do is one visit the fairs throughout the year and now it's virtual so it becomes a bit more easier but also in a different way it's a bit of overwhelm and the other one is we have a very stringent uh, process of interviewing the artists um, as well as uh, we look at the portfolio we do a detailed portfolio review so all the artists that we choose for our platform and who are a part of uh, covered art cohort they go through a, quite a stringent and meticulous process um, and then we look at their voice their technique um, how they're pushing boundaries of what art is in meaningful incredible ways and then we look at the ambition of course and if they uh, we think that they have uh, what it takes to have a growing career and making the mark in the contemporary art world. And then um, we onboard them. So currently we have eight artists. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that we start uh, small with these group of artists and we incubate them. So we do have a range of uh, classes as well as guidance, bespoke mentorship, which really differentiates us from anything else that's out there in the market. There is um, no incubator style gallery, which is looking at uh, not only creating a market for themselves, but teaching them the skills to sustain their market uh, after the contract with the covered art is done. And also uh, from a collector's uh, point of view, the collectors can actually watch them grow and participate in the journey as well. Mm. So what you are offering is always going to be fresh and new and and innovative and never seen before. Absolutely right. And therefore, uh, we think that that will uh, give our collectors and the art lovers and the art curious an insight into the emerging art world. And therefore, we we believe that what we bring uh, to the market is a highly curated roster of artists and artworks um, and we are ex- incredibly excited to present them, not just as a, a collection of artworks, but have a curatorially uh, presented show. We will have four uh, curatorially presented shows in a year, always, always relevant to the zeitgeist. And therefore, our first show is on dreams uh, and, and the power of dreams, especially while we are transcending the emotions of a pandemic into uh, creating a new reality, uh, the power of the subconscious, the unconscious, and thinking about the uh, dystopian reality and the utopian future. So we always uh, look at themes which are highly current and relevant in presenting these artworks. While you've been focusing so much online and getting this happening is there the possibility that you will have real-world exhibitions at some point? So initially, uh, we we thought of doing a beautiful pop-up show in central London. Uh, we have the face finalised. 
all of that was in order. Of course, unfortunately, COVID-19 happened. Um, we are, of course, very fortunate that we are able to move that show online. Um, but absolutely, yes, our model has always been to create uh, pop-up shows to launch an exhibition, hold the show for, for three to four days and move the exhibition online. So that's always been our model, even before COVID-19. And then this happened over the past you know, few months. So it was very easy and quick for us to transition online anyways, uh, because we always believed in international access because in-person is fantastic, but at the same time, um, we want the rest of the world. So I'm global and we know we have global art lovers and audiences as well who we'd love for them to take part in and participate and therefore the online uh, viewing room and also online virtual talks and panels. Yes, I really love the international prospect as well. And you can certainly do that. And we've we've learned over the last few months about how how big the world is, how big the opportunity is, but really how small the world is as well, Saras. And I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. Saras Rachapoli there. And you can learn more about COVID at COVID.art. The exhibitions on the site do allow you to navigate around the space, head up and down the stairs to various levels of the gallery and zoom into the artwork hanging on the walls. It's actually quite fun too, and you can check that out at covet.art. That's K-O-V-E-T dot art. And that is the podcast for this edition. If you need any more info or want to click on a few links about what we've covered, you'll find all the details at www.insidethegallery.com.au. And there's also links to our Facebook and Instagram pages, so please like and share so you never miss an upcoming episode. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter on that page at www.insidethegallery.com.au. And all we'll do is send you an email to remind you when any new edition is published. Thanks too for the ongoing support of Pixel Perfect Pro Lab for all your professional and photographic reproduction needs. I'm Tim Stackpool reminding you to practice social distancing as locally advised and keep supporting the arts as best you can. Bye bye for now.